Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi everybody, and thank you for joining me today. This is going to be a a very informative show. My guests today are Dr. Bob and Elizabeth Uslander. They are the co-founders of Empowered Endings. He's a physician. She is a counselor who came together to form an end-of-life and grief care. And I just want to welcome you both to the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's my pleasure. You're welcome. Let's start with you, Dr. Bob. Um, please, Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, so Marsha, I'm a, I'm a physician, but you know, I, I think first, if I if I talk about what I am and what's important to me, I think first and foremost, I'm a, a father and I'm a husband and a friend and um, professionally, I'm a physician, and okay. I I specialize in supporting people through their end of life journey. Um, in my my background. I was an emergency physician for 25 years, and I have a lot of experience in all aspects of medicine and, and healthcare. And about oh, 10 years ago, I, um, I had a, an epiphany, and mm. I realized that that I was really here and, and drawn to supporting people to have a better end of life experience. I had this download from the universe that that basically told me that I'm here to help people die and and to die better. Mm-hmm. And it was powerful well, and it was unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I've been following that path and finding ways to be of service in that, in that realm. And fortunately, several years ago, uh, Elizabeth and I came together um, in a professional context and over time came together as well in a, in a personal um, way and have uh, become very, a powerful um, partnership in life yes. and professionally. And um, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about what we do and to explore what's possible and educate your, your listeners and mm-hmm. you know, who knows what will come from it. So we really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Thank you. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, like my husband, I um, am first and foremost a a mother and a wife and um, a family person. Um, But by trade, I'm a counselor, a spiritual counselor and medical social worker. Um, Around the same time, actually, that Bob had his epiphany driving him into end-of-life care, I went through a series of personal circumstances along with um, a few educational opportunities and professional opportunities that brought all of the work that I had done in spiritual care and also in social work together in this space of end of life and grief care. 
And when we met and started working together, we realized our professional alignment around ensuring dignity and agency in people's journeys was something that needed to drive us towards building something beyond what we had seen and what we had um, encountered in healthcare Mm -hmm. so far. Yes. Moving forward, do you mind if I call you Liz? Is that okay? Absolutely. No a lot of Elizabeths are Liz. I have one friend that she's a <laughs> Betsy. But well, I'm going to call you Liz. So, Liz, maybe you could tell us what is Empowered Endings about? What's, what's that organizational structure about? So Empowered Endings is a collective. Um, it started with the medical group where we've been working together providing end-of-life and grief care and counseling for the last six years. And that has been transformative for our patients and families. So we also created a foundation to ensure that there were people uh, or that there were resources for people who would need access and wouldn't be able to find or afford them themselves to optimize their end-of-life journeys. And then also established an institute to provide education around the wisdom of our experience, everything that we've learned um, over the course of the years that we've been providing this care. When did it start? When did you and start doing this? was founded in 2021. Um, it was founded as an evolution of the medical practice, which had been started years before. And um, the birth of the Institute and the Foundation and the medical group as Empowered Endings, a collective to ensure empowered end-of-life experiences and the optimization of people's end-of-life and grief journeys was really founded a couple of years Mm -hmm. ago. I see. So I know people call you Dr. Bob, Bob, but now that we're best friends, may I call you Bob? (laughs) Of course. I'm going to call you Bob. Okay. So um, what do you do? You mentioned what your background is, but could you just give us a little bit more detail about what you do? For sure. So as a physician, um, I provide high-touch, highly personalized medical care and, and oversight for a team of, of providers who, who are all focused on providing support to patients and families. We, we focus on caring for people who are, who are dealing with complex illnesses or terminal illnesses. Mm-hmm. And and it's really we do it in a very holistic way, um, focusing really on on what's most important to our patients, identifying the things that that are most important to them, understanding their values, understanding their goals, understanding the the, the fears that they have, and mm-hmm. helping them chart a path that is in alignment with their values and wishes. We, we've, we try to bring whatever resources are, are necessary to, to support that, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether the medical system identifies those as priorities or, or pays for them. We don't limit ourselves. We, we're very creative in thinking outside the box in terms of what people need to have the most dignified, comfortable, peaceful journey through their illness and into their end of life. 
we also focus heavily on supporting the families because yes. that's one of the biggest gaps that we've identified is the healthcare system doesn't really have a mechanism to yes. adequately support families who are there taking care of their loved ones. So, yeah. you know, it, so it's a concierge type model where people mm-hmm. have access to us 24 hours a day through email, cell phone, text, whatever. So when something comes up, whether it's the middle of the day or the middle of the night or the weekend, they have a trusted um, advocate and expert who's there to, to help them navigate. Um, but we also, interestingly, we work on a sliding scale, so we, we are also really focused on, on supporting people who can't afford concierge-type fees. Right. So we, I have a question for you, Bob. Um, I know that you're in California. I believe you're are you in San mm-hmm. Diego? Is that where you're located? Yeah, we're in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Okay. If somebody's listening to this and they're in Michigan, are they able to take advantage of any of your services remotely? So we have so one of the other services that we that we provide is counseling and okay. um we so counseling services, coaching type services can be offered to people across state lines at times. Every, okay. Each situation is going to be a bit, you know, unique. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can't provide medical, direct medical care to somebody in Michigan. Um, right. I can't provide medical care to somebody who is not in California or a California resident. Uh-huh. But I can p- potentially help to give some guidance on a more general level people mm-hmm. who are navigating complex situations and have done that in the past. That, that we makes sense. We can also sense. provide, through the um, Educational Institute, we can provide a lot of different resources and education generally about what's mm-hmm. available, what options are available, how to engage, how to advocate, how to communicate within your families, with your providers. Um, so without being able to provide licensed care over state lines, mm-hmm. we can provide a lot of information and exploration that serves people in navigating their own journey within their within their state regulations. I like that because, you know, this is a podcast. People are living all over the place, and they might mm-hmm. be listening and go, well, how does that help me? But the reality is you you are a resource, whether you live in California, as we do, or you do live in Michigan or another part of this country, it allows you to to have the questions that you may want to speak to your to your people with um, where you live to become you know better informed. And I guess what I'd be curious, and I, I think you probably both have a response to this. So we'll start with you, Liz. Um, why did you guys create this to start with? That's a great question and, and links to the, the last question you asked about how we can serve people nationally and even internationally. We created this because two primary things. One, we recognize through our experience the fundamental importance of dignity and agency in all areas of life and especially in this very delicate and dynamic space of end of life and grief care. And Let me ask you, that, may I, oh, I'm sorry ahead. to interrupt you, but I do want to ask this question because this is the second time I've heard you use this word, and I don't know the definition. 
what do you mean when you say agency? Because that tells me like a company. What do you mean when you use that word? Agency describes the ability to be in, make informed decisions. So be informed, have access to information and resources that would allow you, a, an individual, to make decisions that align with your goals, wishes, and values. So I agency see. is really about giving people the freedom to chart their own course in their particular healthcare journey, whatever that looks like for them. I see. I, 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 wanted, I wanted you to continue your thought process because I did interrupt you. But I, like in, on all podcasts, whoever my guests are, there's, there's a glossary that's very familiar with you but maybe not familiar with somebody else. And agency, you know, to me is a business. And so that's why I just wasn't clear on what that meant. So to continue Perfect. about why you created this, I think um, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'd, I'd like you to continue with what you wanted to say about that. No worries at all. Thank you for the opportunity to clarify. I'm glad you asked. So, so the agency and dignity, the, the freedom to make choices mm-hmm. that align with your goals, um, wishes, values, and resources. And then in combination, so that's sort of the foundational principle, and then in combination with our experience of having transformed and co-created hundreds and hundreds of peaceful end-of-life and grief journeys with patients and families that we've been supporting over the years. We Mm -hmm. experience supporting and guiding these patients and their loved ones in a way that allowed them to feel deeply at peace and grateful for the experience that they had, which is in contrast to so many people's end-of-life and grief journeys. And we thought that it would be really important to be able to expand access to that, make sure that as many people have the information that we have, the options that we are able to support, and the ability and the freedom to just explore what's possible, what's right for them, and then find people who can support them in achieving that. Um, it, It is fundamentally, to me, a human right that people should be able and allowed to chart the course of their end-of-life journeys in a way that is aligned with their values and wishes. And in order for that to happen, more people have to know about what's possible, more states have to legalize various options, and more providers have to be willing to support patients and families in them. I I so agree with everything that you're saying. That's one of the reasons I was so honored to have you join me for this that very reason because you may be the spouse. That wasn't the situation in my life. My husband was alive and he passed away instantly. So I didn't even have that decision making to deal with in my family with my spouse. Mm-hmm. But I do have children and I want them to know how I feel. And I think that well I mean we're all gonna leave at some point. And, you know, whether you're in your 20s or you're in your 70s, at some point that's going to happen. You might not think about it as much as it is when you're in your 20s unless maybe you're living with your grandma and might be thinking about it. So I just think what you're doing is vitally important. And, Bob, did you did you want to add anything else to why, why this was created, what your thought was on that? Well, I think, I think Elizabeth, uh, Liz, <laughs> um, expressed it, it, it very well. I, and and uh, one of the things that comes to mind for me is 
I've gotten so um, tired of hearing people say that we take better care of our animals than we do of our people. Yes. And so many people have had experiences of having a beloved pet that got old and was suffering and, and, and they did the compassionate, humane thing of, a, of giving it a gentle, peaceful death instead mm-hmm. of forcing it to suffer um, through more indignities and more debilitation. But we, but we don't, as a society, offer that same compassionate care to our family members, our loved ones. And, and to me, that's, that's, that's a, a huge, huge shortfall yes. in our society. And, and as Liz expressed, we, just by nature of doing what we do, time after time after time, saw people dying peacefully, feeling dignified, and loved ones expressing their gratitude about how, how the experience went and, and knowing that they were going to go on in their life without right. fear and regret and guilt of not having done enough and not helping their loved one have a more peaceful, dignified death. And as we saw this happening over and over again and explored what it was that was, that was taking place, you know, we realized it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like identifying the, 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 the gaps and the challenges and, and then bringing this and then showing up for people. And, and that can be done over and over. It's just a, it's a formula that, that can be taught and it can be expanded so that fewer people have to live with the, with the trauma of watching a loved one die poorly. I, I agree with you. Yes, and um, it's Empowered Endings. Everyone that's listening, there is a website, um, empoweredendings.com, that you can visit. Um, but, um, you know, you started as a physician, Bob, and... Uh, we all have doctors, I mean, you know, and you, depending upon your age and, and your life experiences and things like that, you know, you you might want to have a directive. You, you know, There's different things that we all do in our own personal lives, whether you have a trust, whether whatever that might be. But I would just be curious that, you, you know, you mentioned that you're a physician. What led you to this particular career path? Would you... Is there more to that than what you've already mentioned? Well, so, so at, at, I was an emergency physician for many years, mm-hmm. and that was a great career. It was, it was a great training ground for, for every aspect of medicine and healthcare. It was great exposure to all of the, the amazing advances and benefits that medicine has to offer, and it was also a big fishbowl where where you get exposed to all of the all of the limitations and and constraints in the healthcare system because when things don't go well for people they end up in the ER and yes. and so I learned a lot about what was working and what wasn't working in healthcare um and what I what I realized was what wasn't working was how how elderly people and people with really complex illnesses who were really at the end of life were being cared mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. And over and over again, people were being shuttled into the emergency room 
um, because there wasn't another option that anyone could could conceive of. That right. And, and families were panicking. Doctors weren't available. And so they were being, people were just kind of being brought to the ER and then put on this conveyor belt of and, and being being admitted to the hospital and consulted on by every specialist known. And, and they were just, they, they were being preyed upon in a sense mm-hmm. because everybody gets a piece of it. Everyone gets paid and the, the hospital yes. gets paid and the more, the more that's done, the more money that gets, that gets make, made. And, and no one, no one knows how to stop it or, or, you know, what, what, what to do about it. It just continues to happen because late people don't have advocates and they don't know what else to do. Right. Did so I COVID very play a... Okay, oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry. You had you want to finish your thought? Please do that. Yeah. So, so that that whole that whole thing was 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 in my in, to me fairly disgusting. I also mm-hmm. saw so many people having attempted resuscitations. People who were clearly, you know, it, not able to be revived, being mm-hmm. put through horrendous mm-hmm. traumatic um, experiences, the patients and their family members. And I just over time realized we're 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 doing this poorly. We need to do mm-hmm. a diff- we need to do it differently. And I I've always been um, interested in filling gaps. I've always been looking to to solve problems. And my dad was an, an engineer and an entrepreneur, and and I sort of took on some of that. And so when I I years ago I started a house call practice in a small community I was living in for homebound seniors. And then started a home care company, and I just I've, I've I've been really interested in serving my communities and filling the gaps. And I I just realized that appropriate and and compassionate care for elderly people and very ill people was was woefully inadequate, and that was a gap that I decided I wanted to fill. And then I had this epiphany. Uh, that I was to help people die, and it all just sort of, it, I, I was led to where I mm-hmm. am currently. And then Elizabeth coming into my life at, at just the right time yes. was another component of that. And it's, it's, I feel like we're being led and being given opportunities to serve in a really meaningful way. And um, I'm excited about where we're at and what's ahead. I bet. What about you, Liz? I mean, you mentioned before that you were uh, a counselor. Um, what, what led you to this um, career path? Mine is a is a kind of interesting, long and winding road. Um, okay. It was certainly not something that I understood uh, when I was this child. You know, this is exactly what I was going to be doing. But I, I grew up in a really vibrant international community where I learned a lot about human humanity um, and Mm -hmm. dignity and the importance of dignity and how we treat each other. And following an early spiritual awakening, I was inspired to pursue extensive psychological, philosophical, and theological education. Um, So that in combination with my very professional experiences brought me to a a place where I was able to meet and serve people really intimately in their transformative experience of life. So meeting people who are struggling with major transitions, whether it's the loss of a loved one or 
some of the other things, life changes that happen, uh, mental health crises, addiction recovery, healing family trauma, um, spiritual transformation, all kinds of different things. And, and through a series then of, of um, personal experiences, I was informed to recognize the really deep potential of this space. It's a really sacred space. The, the end of life and grief journey is, um, in my experience, a really sacred space. And people often don't know how to navigate it because it's, it's a it's not something that we talk about very much in our society. Right. It's not something that we understand very well because mm-hmm. it's such a unique experience. Each person, each loss, each journey is, um, is so unique that it can be really hard to find a map where you can get support to chart a course that would make sense for you. And, um, and so it was through this combination of my personal experiences and my professional experiences and, and my education that all of the interests came together and aligned around end-of-life care. And when California legalized the End-of-Life Option Act, I became yes. really fascinated with the public policy aspect of that mm-hmm. in particular. And that's where um, moving into creating options life quality of life enhancing options, ensuring family support as an option, bringing doctors into end-of-life care as an option, and having additional companion guidance like doulaship as an option became became really important to me to um, help people connect with all of the information and resources that would allow them to, to really have that empowered journey and then potentially experience it in a transformational way because of the connection mm-hmm. and, and safety and resources that are available. Did you find that there was an uptake with this um, because of COVID? Because I see you were right in that we were right in the middle of COVID when this kind of all got started. Did that play a part? Not in our experience. Oh, yeah. um, Okay. Yeah, not with some the medical practice didn't didn't okay. um, see an uptick specifically in in end of life care or end of life options around COVID. Although I think All right. the experience of COVID broadly in our society has made people more open and interested in conversing about mm-hmm. what it means to be facing an end of life journey and what it means to be a loved one going through the grief journey, we experienced a collective grief um, as a culture and, frankly, globally, that was um, the first, certainly, of, of my generation at that level. And, um, and I think it, it primed people to be a little bit more interested in conversations about what's possible and what they might need to be thinking about in terms of their relationship to these questions. Yes, I agree. I, I totally agree. And um, we're going to get into the more specifics. So, um, Bob, let me ask you this. How and when do you suggest people begin planning for the end of their life experience? I think that's very mm-hmm. key to what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, it's one of, one of our, our um, real passions uh, in one of the the. the services that we provide through the medical group um, is sitting with people and exploring 
what they would want or wouldn't want when when things change for them. So it, as far as when to start planning, there's, it's never too soon to start planning. It's never too soon to to start having conversations um, with your loved ones and ex- exploring what you, you know, how you might envision the end of your life. I realize when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're really not thinking about mm-hmm. your end of life. And if something, if if the, your end of life is draws near, then it's it's considered tragic and unexpected. And um, but it happens. People mm-hmm. get in accidents. They develop, you know, cancers at a young age. Lots of things happen, and and mm-hmm. I, I think it's very healthy to recognize that life is a cycle, and and it will come to an end. And mm-hmm. developing a, a sense of comfort with with that idea early on, I think, allows people to have a much more peaceful life and to really focus on living. But practically speaking, people tend to start having these conversations um, when the, when they get quite a bit older, or when they have an experience that that kind of hits home for mm-hmm. them, and and you know, a friend or a relative who who was stricken with an illness or ends up in the hospital and going on hospice, and so people start to think more about well, what I would I would not want that to happen to me. I would not want to go through that. Um, or sometimes that was a beautiful process and that's how I'd want to go given the option. Um, so, so we get calls from people of, diff- it, it, of different ages. More often they're 70, 80, 90, occasionally they're four, in their 40s or 50s and, and they want to sit and talk about what they can do to ensure that when it's their time, they don't suffer needlessly, or they don't suffer. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't go have to go through more than they would be willing, or or wanting to go through. And those are those are really interesting conversations. And I mean, I, I have a pretty unique perspective because I I have a lot of experience in working with with people at end of life and navigating through that journey, and I also have the experience as an emergency physician of of seeing what happens when you don't plan and how things can, can change quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm able to lay out a, a, the different scenarios for people. And, and the fact that I'm part of a group, a part of a, of a practice that supports people through different options at end of life and that we're comfortable with that and knowledgeable about it um, allows people to see that there are different choices that they can make. They can be more empowered, more informed, and more more proactive um, than than many physicians would would know about or be comfortable talking about. For example, we talked about you know medical aid and dying as an option for people in the in the states that offer that that allow that. We talk about voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. As a as a very viable option, legal option for people who feel like their life does not have adequate quality because of sure. illness and debilitation. So let me I, interrupt I you right there. May I may I interrupt yeah, you ahead. right there if you don't mind, Bob? Of course. I want to really spend some significant time on 
medical aid and dying and VSED in just a few minutes. But I, because I, I, I do want to come back to that because I have some questions around that. But what I sure. haven't heard you mention, you know, is we should all have, well, I presume people want to have directives. Um, and um, so don't, aren't we, regardless of our age, well, I mean, maybe not. I mean, I don't know that my kids in their middle to late 40s are having directives with their doctors, but I certainly know that, that I do. We do want our doctors to know our feelings about this, don't we, our physicians that we see regularly? I think it's important to have the doc, your doctors know your feelings about it and understand what they're, what they're willing to support and what their okay. b- belief system is around it. I think it's more important to have your, your loved ones and the people who are serving as your healthcare agent or power of attorney have them understand what you're right. what you're um what's important to you and what what you're willing to do or not do and and have those documents um filled out signed um mm-hmm. and and then make sure that your healthcare agent is comfortable right honoring your wishes right because sometimes I, I, I people would agree. have a healthcare agent who, who they had never talked about what they might want or not want. And mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, their healthcare agent may be uncomfortable with some of those choices or mm-hmm. unable to make decisions that would be aligned. Um, right. I, so having those conversations is critical. Yes, I would agree. And so that sort of takes me to my next question with you, Liz, which is I would imagine that having these conversations can be very difficult. Um, although I must say, um, in my own personal experience, um, I would consider myself and for my husband to be extremely lucky. While certainly um, dying at the Staples Center wasn't part of the game plan that day, we were there for a basketball game in 2009, we didn't have directives or anything like that with our doctors. Nothing was nothing like that was in place. And I got extremely fortunate. And by that I mean, and I, I've mentioned this before, but I just think it's it's in keeping with this conversation about what physicians are willing to do. Um, they obviously had to call, um, you know, for medical support and the paramedics because he literally was actively dying there. He was gurgling. I didn't know what the heck that meant, but um, I didn't know at the time. And when they got him around the corner to the hospital, you know, he was he was effectively dying. And when the um, doctor came out of the emergency room to say, to give me an update, because, you know, obviously I'm in a panic, and... You know, he's only 62 years old, and we didn't see this coming. Um, he said, you know, we're doing our very best to stabilize his heart, but we haven't been successful so far. But we're working to try and do that for him. And without hesitation, you guys, I said, is he able to breathe on his own? And they said, no. I said, then unplug him. And they did. Now, you know um, that wasn't the common practice then, but gratefully they did unplug him, and he died peacefully. 
and I didn't have a second thought about that because I knew he would not have wanted to have survived this. And, you know, I feel that I was in some ways extremely fortunate that this happened the way it did for him. Um, and I just wanted to sort of add that in there because I do have you know, some personal connections to how this happens when you're not expecting it. And I would imagine, Liz, that when you talk to people, that talking about these subjects can be very difficult for some people. Maybe it's not difficult for Marsha, but it can be difficult for many people. And I was just wondering if you could provide us some guidance on how to get that started. For sure. Um, before I do, I just want to thank you for sharing the story that you just did about the loss of your husband and and thank you. honor how challenging that must have been, how painful, and also that you're able to see spaces of gratitude where, you know, you did know what he wanted and needed and the doctors yes. did listen to you and and do it the way that you guys wanted it done. Um, that's right. a very powerful story. Yeah. Very. Thank you for letting me share it. Okay, so how do you sure. how do you speaks, tell people to go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say it speaks to the importance of these conversations. Um yes. which which can be really challenging. And I think the thing that's the hardest is we don't always know how the conversations are going to go. Sometimes people who are planning their end-of-life journeys have a very clear sense of what they want, and they're not sure how to broach the subject with their loved ones. Um, maybe their loved ones, you know, don't feel comfortable talking about it, and it can be vice versa. You can have adult children of parents who are, you know, facing chronic or terminal illnesses and, and really wanting to talk with them about what they want and need, recognizing that they may be responsible for ensuring appropriate care, and it can be um, uncomfortable or challenging for, for the person going through it. So I think the most important thing is to recognize that every person is different, every journey is different, and so each person has a unique constellation of needs and values and interests and emotions, and every relationship, similarly, is unique and different. So when we're talking to the people that we love about what we want or what they may want, approaching mm -hmm. it with an orientation of meeting them wherever they are um, without right. an agenda other than mm -hmm. to really understand what's important to each other and how we might support each other in achieving it. So um, in the example of, you know, a, an adult child speaking to a parent, it can be challenging to bring it up, but it can be really valuable to start with something a little bit softer and easier, saying something like, I'm working on my advanced healthcare directive, and I, I noticed these questions are really interesting, and I wondered if you thought about them or if you have any ideas about, you know, what you would want in your journey. Yes. And rather than making it very specifically a directive to achieve a particular outcome of knowing exactly what needs to be done in the event of, you know, that, that more um, punctuated approach to communication, giving it something a little bit softer, creating a, mm -hmm. a gentler approach and, um, and doing what we can to monitor our own emotional 
experiences of things. So recognizing that people may say that they wish for something that we don't agree with or we don't understand, really being um, able to slow down and ask questions to achieve understanding and, and be supportive of the exploration as opposed to focus on a particular agenda or outcome, um, I think is a really, really helpful orientation to have in those conversations. There are also when you, supportive go resources ahead. Like, um, mm-hmm. like Five Wishes and, um, and lots of other kinds of resources out there that, that can help prompt or, um, you know, uh, move forward some of those conversations and, and to help mm-hmm. people get more specific, um, depending on how clinical you might want to be or how legal you might want to be in your orientation or in the outcomes that you're hoping for. Right. I mean, you you threw in legal, which is another element to this, um, and we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, as well. But it is, I don't know, I just, to me, for me personally, maybe because of what I did experience, but even if I hadn't, I mean, my parents have passed. My husband's parents have passed. Someday we're all going to pass. If you want to have input into that, you, maybe you've already purchased your plot. Maybe you know your, your family knows you're going to be cremated and scattered in Cape Cod. You know what I'm saying? At some point, you have to have those, well, it's helpful. I don't want to tell people what they have to do. But it's just helpful (laughs) knowing, you know, what it is your loved ones want. I mean, I haven't said to my children, so what do you want to do when you die? I mean, I I haven't actually had that conversation. But based on the fact that, um, you know, that some, you know, I, there have been deaths in our families on both sides of, of, with my kids and their spouses, you know, that it, it isn't something we can pretend like isn't going to happen. And so if you take some responsibility of just ensuring um, some comfort in knowing, I, I think is, is so important. And, Bob, I guess I'd like to know from your perspective, how do you work with patients and families? Well, there's a whole host of different ways. I mean, if, if people here, who are right here in, in San Diego and around Southern California, we, we, we do a lot of um, kind of one-on-one medical care. Like, and mm-hmm. as I shared before, every time that we take care of a patient, we're also taking care, taking care of their family. Um, the, the needs of the patients in, are, are, are typically easier to meet. And especially if you have a team that that is dedicated to you know, showing up for them and and addressing those needs um, as, as the top priority, showing up for the families is often a bit more complicated, um, but it's 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 also very critical to the success mm-hmm. of the whole of the whole system. So we you know if a patient we get calls from hospice agencies who have patients who are looking for some additional support and we get calls from doctors at the hospital who have patients who are being discharged and need more support than what the system currently offers Uh, and a host of other ways that patients come to us and we typically uh, do a call we'll we'll do a um, sort of a, a consultation call where we get a sense of what they're looking for, what they're dealing with, what their um, resources are, 
and and then talk a little bit about how we might um, help to, to to meet their needs and see if it's a fit. And if and if everything if it seems like it is a fit, then then we'll schedule a time to go and meet them. Um, Wonderful. If, if, if possible in person. And mm-hmm. if it's if distance is an issue or we're trying to do things really quickly and schedules are are tight, then we might do it through telehealth. Got um, it. But we it's a it's a every situation is is unique and sure. every encounter um sometimes we we just do a one visit and give them some guidance and make recommendations about what resources to bring in to make things better and easier often we engage in an ongoing basis and start bringing in our our support services medical care counseling holistic providers we have often will will recommend um acupuncture or massage mm. therapy we have patients who would benefit who benefit from um, being introduced to cannabis as an alternative to some of the other mm-hmm. medications they're on um, so and, and counseling and grief support is an important component of all of that we work closely with death doulas and end-of-life doulas who bring let's talk an about enormous that amount of support. yeah let me bring in Liz about to, that Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bob. Okay. Finish your thought. Well, I think the one thing that's important is when we talk about how we work with people, um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about how the how the financial model works, just so okay. there's an understanding. We've the the healthcare system and the the financial model is really complicated in general. We we make it simple. We we don't work with insurance. We don't bill insurance. We don't contract with insurance. We, we have a direct relationship with our patients and their families so that we have a, a fee that is charged um, for the services that we provide. Um, and when people are able to pay that fee, they do so. And I, in general, they're, they're comfortable with it and I think experience a great value for what they're receiving um, or what they paid. And we also work on a sliding scale so that in, in general, people who can't afford to pay uh, the 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 fee that we that we've set are they pay what they can so we wow, take care of homeless right. people who can't pay anything and we oh. take care of people who are on very fixed incomes and so that it's sort of like a, a benefactor beneficiary model where mm-hmm. the people who are able to pay are the benefactors the people who can't that are beneficiaries of their of their support and and that grace and wow so far it's been working really well that's that's, I'm glad you were able to explain that. But, Liz, let's talk, because I know we've got about a little over 10 minutes left, a little, little over, truly. So what does it mean um, when you talk about end-of-life doulas? Maybe people are not, I mean, people maybe have heard of baby doulas, um, although that, because that was sort of popular a few years ago. But what are end-of-life doulas and grief counselors? What, what does that mean? So end-of-life doulas, are um, people who provide companionship, comfort, and guidance to the Mm -hmm. patients facing terminal illness and to their loved ones. Um, Their training may vary, so they can be healthcare providers by trade, such as nurses and social workers who go into providing this companionship guidance, or they can be professionals from other fields drawn to support people in this space. Their role is non-medical, so even if they have clinical training in their role as a doula. 
they're they're informed certainly by their clinical training and experience, but their mm-hmm. role and responsibility as a doula is, is to be is to provide holistic support that encompasses the emotional, spiritual, and practical aspects of the end of life journey. Um, what that means in the context of healthcare is, you mentioned um, birthing doulas are are known. So, in the birthing world, it used to be um, in our society that it it was a matter of an OBGYN and a mother, a pregnant mother in a hospital having a child. So that was the limit of what was available and. Birthing doulas and birthing midwives and birthing centers have become popular because people understand that some people would prefer to have a holistic experience or a more organic experience, staying home, being supported not only by clinical care, but also by holistic, emotional, spiritual care. And um, and through that movement, birthing doulas have become a popular part of the birthing experience. Our hope is to to do the same thing with end-of-life doulas. By having our physicians partner with doulas, we're hoping that we'll be able to create, to move the needle um, in this particular Mm -hmm. movement and help create a space where doctors specialize in end-of-life care and are trained specifically in the nuances of -of end-of-life care, which is not currently a field of medicine that's um, individuated practice and taught in medical schools, and that doulas would be able to partner with them and provide that holistic companionship and guidance to support the emotional and spiritual needs of both the patients and the families. Some of the practical things that they do are um, help people understand more about their experience of their diagnosis, of their journey, what their wishes are, how they might want to create ritual or legacy, and also supporting um, not all doulas, but some doulas are are interested in supporting the grief journey, so walking with the patients and their family members through the whole process of preparing for the end of life, experiencing Mm -hmm. the transition, and then bereavement support beyond, which is certainly really important um, for, for the loved ones, of course. So, so doulas can can do a different things depending on their training and experience and interest. Um, but right now, there there aren't a whole lot of opportunities because the medical field doesn't recognize doulas as sort of a legitimate part of end of life care um, yet. And then grief okay. counselors, of course, are are people who um, specialize in supporting the, the mental, emotional, and spiritual experience of grief which is something that is not limited to, you know, when someone dies, what happens after. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very much a part of the whole process. And in our experience, having continuity of care where someone is walking with you through the end-of-life journey and continuing to stay with the family through the bereavement journey can be a really powerful um, protective factor and, and supports positive outcomes for both the patients in their end-of-life journey, knowing that their loved ones will be held uh, along the way, even after Mm -hmm. they are gone, and also for the family members and loved ones who who are left behind and have to navigate life now and and look for new ways of living in the wake of their loss. Yes. 
Bob, let's let's go back to what you said earlier because I think that people are not necessarily familiar with medical aid in dying. What used to be called death and dignity, um, which is which is legal in California and I believe ten other states, um, and also the other VSED. So maybe you could just um, in these next few moments explain what that is all about medical aid and dying sure yeah i'd be happy to and you know it's it's hard to to really give it justice do it justice in a few minutes so i know if you're interested we'd be happy to come come back and and really um dive deeper into that into both okay. these options because it's fascinating and i think we're going to learn um, to, over time there's going to be more and more attention placed mm-hmm. on both of these options mm-hmm. um, so medical aid and dying uh is is a, a legal option for people in, as you mentioned, there are 10 states and jurisdictions in, in the country that now allow a person who is competent to make decisions and has a terminal condition with a life expectancy of less than six months to go through a process that is um, guided by a, a physician, an MD or a DO, that allows them to um, get access to a prescription for medication that if they choose to fill the prescription and take the medication, they will go to sleep and within minutes mm-hmm. and die peacefully within a matter of minutes or hours. Mm-hmm. So people who are dying of cancer or end-stage heart disease or um, neurologic conditions like ALS, Parkinson's disease, um, heart failure, lung disease, who are suffering, do not mm-hmm. have to allow the, the terminal condition to go to the bitter end and be completely debilitated, suffering through the indignities of a of a condition that that they're not willing to suffer through. It gives them a sense of control, a sense of of empowerment. And able, and they're able to preserve more of their dignity in, in terms of what's what's dignity to them. But they um, have to take the medication themselves. That's what correct. my understanding is. Because you, it's not like the wife can say to her husband, "Okay, honey, take these. I'm going to help mm-hmm. you with your water." They they have to be cognizant to take the medication personally. Am I right about that? You are 100 percent right. The person okay. drives the process. There's two physicians who have to both confirm that the patient qualifies, the attending physician um, who ends up prescribing the medication, and a consulting physician. Those are independent physicians who who both agree based on the patient's condition, review of medical records, communication with the person, that they understand what they're asking for, they're, they understand all the other options that are available to mm-hmm. them, and they're making this decision. When people make the choice to go to go through the process and get access to the prescription, they're not always ready to take the medication or convinced that they ever will. Okay. Some of these people are looking for something to, for some sort of insurance that if their suffering gets to a certain point above a threshold that they've sort of set for themselves, that they will have an access to something that will allow them to have what we like to call a soft landing. Mm-hmm. They don't have to suffer beyond what they're 
com- willing to as long, if, if they have a terminal condition and a short life expectancy. But they, okay. but you're right, they have to be in charge and they have to be able to swallow the medication or, or get into their, into their body in some way. It can't be done to them. It can't be done for them. There Correct. are other places around the world where euthanasia is legal, such as Canada mm-hmm. and Denmark and Belgium. Um, here in the United States, medical aid in dying is the is the the legal option that's available to people in some of the states and they and the individual is responsible for taking the medication themselves mm-hmm. well i i know I, I i i hate rushing you right now bob because there's so much to say about all of this <laughs> and and um i would like to see this be something that's available across this country, and I think it's important to say this because this is now I'm speaking on my own opinion about this. Just because this is available where you live doesn't mean you have to do this. I think there should be the opportunity for this wherever you live, and if you decide to take advantage of it, great, and if you don't, then you don't need to. It's not a requirement. It's the same with the VSED. And I know that we don't, I, I'm just terribly rushing you with that. But that's that's not legal right now. Am I right? Do you want to just de- define nope. what VSED means? Sure. Uh, and, and, and I'll just give it a minute here because um, we don't have okay. much time. Volun- VSED stands for Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. And voluntarily stopping eating and drinking is 100% legal for any individual who has the ability to make decisions for themselves. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't. And it's something that you would need to explore individually. But mm-hmm. a competent person can make the choice about whether or not to bring sustenance into their body. Um, it's 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 complex, but I'll just I'll just state that here in in California, at least in San Diego, if a if a competent adult makes the decision to stop eating and drinking, nobody can force them to do otherwise. But let and me ask you. I'll, let me interrupt here because this is really critical. Let's say you are of sound mind. And you want that in your directive. And 10 to 20 years from now, 15 years from now, you find yourself demented. With, and now you're not able to say, you know what, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Let me go. Can, can, they, can they adhere to that? So that's nuanced. That's too complicated, and I don't huh? I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I can't. I, I wouldn't. It wouldn't serve to just give us a, a pat right. answer, yes or no. That's it's a that's it's a, a that's a that's a part situation. two. <laughs> that is a part two, Doctor Bob, exactly. because I think that that is something that many of us. I mean, the whole thing that we can do with, you know, the medical aid and dying, which we do have in California, is wonderful, and hopefully that will go across the country. But I would like to see, as we are an aging um, population, that if we know and our children know or our spouses know that we are living in a um, residential 
um, living condition where you truly cannot speak, can you not, cannot talk, you aren't putting that liquid into your body, it's all being done medically. It just seems like the kind thing, just like medical aid in dying, would be to say, done, stop giving me the liquid, stop giving me all of those IVs, I want to leave now. It's just, I hope that, I hope we see that, um, Bob and Elizabeth. I really, I really do hope that we do see that because I think that's important and I think it's a political thing that I would like to see happen someday. But I, I would agree with you, Bob, that this is a part two, um, discussion because there's a lot to this. And I'm right. just really grateful that both of you have spent this time with me today because you've opened the door which I think is so important, you've opened the door, regardless of where people live, to start this conversation. If you've been afraid to do so in the past, you've made it seem so kind and so beneficial to all concerned. And for that, I'm so very grateful that you've both been with me today to explain your positions. It's it's fabulous. Empowered Endings couldn't be a, a greater title of what it is you do. It's just fabulous. Thank you, Marcia. It, it was my, truly my pleasure. And everyone that's listening, you can you can certainly go to empoweredendings.com to learn more. Um, and I will make sure I include that in the follow-up blog so people can easily find you. And I will let you get both get on with the rest of your afternoon. And just know that this has been enlightening. And I'm, I'm grateful for this information. So I wish you a wonderful afternoon. Everybody that's listening, I wish the same for you. Maybe it's not the afternoon when you're listening, but it doesn't matter. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you all very much. We're going to say goodbye now. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. <laughs>